Hey, this is Joe Perry. It was the tough focus on metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of that which we call Focus on Metal. That's right, we're back three weeks in a row. Can you freaking believe it? And many more weeks to come. Richie just keeps throwing the audio at me, so some good stuff on the way in the coming weeks. But this week, we will be talking to author G.D. Pretorius. He uh, recently put out a book called Babysitting a Band on the Rocks. And he was involved during his career out on the road with lots of our favorite bands, Van Halen, ACDC, and uh, of course, from the little blurb up front, Aerosmith. Of course, at the time that uh, Greg got involved with Aerosmith, it was kind of on the tail end of uh, Joe's tenure. But anyways, that uh, once again, Joe Perry up front, if you want to hear my whole full interview with Joe from way back years ago, episode 203, you can head up to focusonmetalpod.com. And look for that one. Enough about past episodes. This is all about this week. And like I said, Richie has a very, very long conversation with Greg all about his career out there on the road, how he gets started, kind of what his role was, and, you know, giving an explanation of exactly what he did out there. And then some great stories of being out on the road, being involved with a lot of our uh, favorite and pretty damn awesome bands. And it was cool listening to Richie talk to him about this as well because somewhere i'm hoping that i still have it but i had some recordings from some of the clubs around here back when aerosmith went back to playing clubs again and i'll have to leaf through my cds and stuff and see if i can find them if not then uh i believe they have been captured by the ex-wife that would definitely be unfortunate because uh there were some great recordings of the band in those days and I mean, there's not a lot out there as well besides a couple of the studio albums that have, uh, you know, Jimmy Crespo or Rick Dufay on there. And also, before we get rolling here, I just want to say uh, welcome to any of our new Amazon or Audible subscribers. That's right. Focus on Metal is now available both on Amazon Podcast as well as Audible. So if you're listening to us on either one of those platforms, welcome. And uh, definitely a lot of great stuff that's hanging out in our back catalog on the feed there. So feel free to leaf through there. And, uh, you know, where that one stops, you can also, as I just kind of mentioned, you can head up to either focusonmetal.net or focusonmetalpod.com. Either way, going to bring you to the same damn spot. And, you know, the website up there, you can navigate through there and get all kinds of episodes, all of our special episodes, the producers episodes, all that good stuff as well. And if you did happen to find us on Amazon or Audible and you're digging this and this is kind of the stuff that you like to listen to, then I would urge you to uh, check out a lot of the uh, shows that are produced and brought to by our friends. So there's uh, Mars Attacks and Iron City Rocks and Talking Metal. Of course, the classic classic metal show with uh, Chris and Neely. And then hooked up with them is, uh, you know, Shockwaves as well as Aftershocks with our buddy Bob Nelbandian for both of those ones. And two more, our friends over at Wiki Metal. These guys are the biggest metal show in Brazil. 
And we also should not forget our friends over at Decibel Geek. So lots of other great shows for you to explore as well. I'm not sure how many of those are actually up on Amazon or Audible, but uh, they are out there, and I urge you to uh, check those puppies out. But anyways, this is going to be a long one. Is a good at least hour worth of audio. Great conversation that Richie had. Once again, we're talking with GD Pretorius author of Babysitting a Band on the Rocks. So now that I've been gabbing for almost five minutes, what do you say we get into Richie's chat with author G.D. Pretorius? Hi, is this Richie? It is. Is that Greg? Hey, it's Greg. How are you? I'm very good. You're in New York. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Where are you? I'm in Lowell, Massachusetts. Oh, Lowell. That's very funny. That's very funny. One of my episodes takes place in Lowell. I know. I was there. Uh, <laughs> I was going to talk to you about that. Um, <laughs> Actually, yeah, very interesting episode. Yeah, that's great. That's great. How you doing? All right. Well, yeah. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. I'll take all the uh, I'll take all the press I can get. You know. Uh, have you done any press yet? Well, this is about my fourth or fifth interview. You know, um, and uh, so uh, so it should go pretty smoothly, at least from my perspective. You know. So, yeah. Greg, let's let's get into the book. Um, sure. I normally don't ask this question to a lot of the authors, like why was the right time now to do the book? But I have to ask you because you, this is all really in a six-year period from the late 70s to the to mid-80s, right. and you're, you're only writing the book now. So why now? Ah, okay. Good question. Good question. Well, for, for decades, you know, I had told these stories you know, to people, and, uh, you know, it was a blast, and then I forgot about it, you know, it was kind of like I got on with life after I did it, I was a very young man when I did it, you know, got out of the business professionally when I was probably 22 or 20, uh, my wife stayed in the business for many years, um, in the, uh, uh, management and production side, so I had a, I had a foot in it, you know, it was that kind of thing, and I really got along with the musicians, because her, and the guy she worked for, her partner in the management and, and uh, business and promotion business, you know, they, they, they knew music, but they didn't know music, you know. I mean, I, I was never a musician, but I always wanted to be. And I, I managed, quasi-managed, you know, my high school friend's band and that kind of thing. So, you know, I really kind of learned. And I was uh, uh, so passionate about it. You know, that uh, I got to the point where, you know, I could listen to I could listen to an album or a song and basically know whether somebody was playing a Les Paul or, you know, a, uh, uh, a Fender Strat or Telecaster. You know, I could tell them, you know, acoustically, I could tell whether it was a Techimony or a, or, or, a, or a Martin or whatever, you mm-hmm. know, and I kind of prided myself on that. You know, it's just I have an ear and, you know, I pride myself on knowing, eh, at least when it came to classic rock, knowing what I thought was good and it usually proved to be correct. So anyway, so I told stories for years and, uh, and then what finally happened was not, I guess about 2015 or 16, a good friend of mine from college who, um, is a real writer. I, when I say a real writer, I mean a professional writer. That's what he does for a living. Um, a guy named Michael Benson, he writes true crime and he said to me one day, he goes, you know, you should write all this shit down. You know, it would Mm -hmm. really make a great book. 
and it was sort of a challenge, you know, and uh, so I did. And it took me a good two years, you know, um, to do it from soup to nuts. Um, and, uh, you know, you probably couldn't have done it 20 years ago, you know, without the ability to do the research that you can do today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even going back before that, probably, you know, the real impetus was uh, a chance meeting. Uh, on my 50th birthday, my wife took me to Turks and Caicos for not a surprise, but, you know, a 50th birthday trip. Um, I would have gone anywhere, but obviously she thought Turks and Caicos was threatened. And we went to a place called uh, um, uh, Paradise, Paradise Key or something like that. I forget what it's called. And unbeknownst to me, uh, Keith Richards was <laughs> and we wandered down to the bar the first evening we were there after dinner. And who's there sitting at the bar by himself? All by himself. It's Keith Richards. And we shot the shit for like the next three hours with Keith Richards, which is like, you know, really has nothing to do with the story I wrote in the book. But it was just, it really is what got me started at the end of the day. And uh, uh, I went to the pool the next day and wrote it all down. It's just so surreal. That really happened last night. Did I really just like hang out with Keith Richards with nobody else and nothing for like three hours, you know? Um, and it did happen. And I wrote down everything I could remember. Uh, and then it made its way into an essay. And from that essay, it made it way, its way into an Aerosmith essay as people said, hey, let me hear more, you know? And then it just kind of grew through. Yeah. Greg, um, did you stop and start at all? Or did you even at some point think that ah, this isn't worth finishing? It's not working out the way I want it to when you were writing it. You know, you know, not really. I mean, start and stop. Yes. I got a day job. I've always had a day job. You know, yeah. it's not, I'm not a writer by trade. So, you know, uh, start and stop for sure. But start and stop because of insecurity or something like that? No. No. You know, uh, you know, I just kept writing, writing, writing. And, uh, you know, at some point, you know, when I kind of thought it was finished, you know, where I was getting there, um, I was like, okay, is this any good? You know, I knew it didn't suck. But I was like, is it any good? And my brother-in-law, who's an avid reader, I go to him one day and he says, how's it going? And I go, and I tell him exactly the same thing. I go, you know, I'm almost there, you know, but I don't really know if it's, if it's great, you know, because I'm striving for great. I don't just want to be good. I want to be great, you know. And he goes to me, he goes, listen, you read as much as I do. He goes, would you accept what you're writing? If you would accept what you're writing, then it's going to be great, you know. If you don't, rewrite it. And it was the best advice anybody ever gave me, you know, because I, you know, ended up once I finished, quote, unquote, finished the thing, you know, I went back and I read it probably a dozen times from start to finish. I was sick of hearing fights, you know. Mm. But every time I came across things and I'm like, no, that doesn't. So I fixed it, you know. Um, it's, uh, you know, my life, my uh, in my life, I, I've written all my life, but not like this. I'm an advertising guy. So, you know, I've, I've been big on headlines and, you know, short, pithy body copy, if you will. You know, but uh, to actually write a work like this, that, that was a big endeavor. And, uh, and I got to tell you, it was a blast doing the research part. And I've met so many people along the way. Just met people like, you know, I keep still continue to meet people on Facebook. Met a guy the other day who actually has 
audience tapes, bootlegs of all the Aerosmith shows at the clubs that I talk about in the book. You know, and like, how else, you know, how crazy is that? You know, 40 <laughs> years later, I'm listening to the shows where I was in the room and running the show. I think know, so. I think, Greg, one of the great selling points about books like this is you're talking pre-internet. You know, all those yeah. stories, a lot of them mightn't be out there. And you're telling your your story of actually being there for, for shows. Like, you bring up the Aerosmith club tour, and you even say it yourself in the book that it's not really touched on in the, the autobiographies or a lot of the, the band's biographies. So you, you decided, right, I'm going to write all about this experience with Aerosmith. They did, they did this club tour of, like, 10 or 12 shows or whatever it was. Right. And it's, it's not really out there that much and it's it's stories like that if you're a fans of all these band like that's where all the gold is especially for me because i'm a big aerosmith fan oh good 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 yeah and that's you know that's kind of where i was coming from you know it's like i mean it, i shouldn't say i didn't start out you know with that being the goal but you know as it took shape because it's like any i guess any creative work you know uh, it, it takes shape, and sometimes it ends up going places that you really never intended in the first place, you know? Um, but my 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 uh, uh, experiences with Aerosmith were very intimate and intense, and they all happened over the course of several months. And and at a time when when they were they were you know uh, 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 down and out as you could possibly be, which is a very unique perspective, you know, particularly for a band that two years before before I got involved with them was you know playing playing uh, uh, California Jam, you know, to half a million people, <laughs> and uh, you know, end up having to shepherd them through rooms that you know maybe had anywhere from from you know six seven hundred people to fifteen hundred people it was quite a trip, you know. Uh, and obviously, it left a lasting impression on me. Mm. Now, you learned your chops really at the Calderon Concert Hall. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. I mean, before that, I was on a college concert committee down the road from the Calderon. So, you know, uh, uh, that was my first experience. But really, two years into that, when I was a junior in college, you know, so what am I, you know, 19 or, you know, maybe 20, uh, I got put in charge of a 2,500-seat theater where I was running like 50 shows a year, you know. So it was, I had to grow up really, really quick, you know. Um, and on a lot of levels, you know, from, from running shows and dealing with artists to even running concessions and, you know, making sure the heating and air conditioning work, which it was, it was quite a trial by fire, mm. you know. But what, one of the things that comes across from you working there is the characters that work there. And you talk about each of them and all their quirks and, and their, their different personalities. I think... You have to be kind of a different type of human being to work in the concert business. Then it's not normal, I don't think, than a lot of other people's jobs. You know, it's funny. It's I've spoken to a couple people who tell me that you know I'm writing about things that happened you know what thirty five forty years ago, and I talk to you know people who are doing sort of the same things today. And they actually are the same things. So I'm told the business really hasn't, at least the nuts and bolts of the business, really haven't changed very much. Um, but 
But yeah, you got to be. I mean, you know, I was, uh, um, you know, I was just sucked into music at an early age. You know, my brother turned me on to Jethro Tull when I was like 13, 15, and there was no looking back, you know. Mm. Uh, you know, I was particularly enamored with um, with uh, Brit Rock, if you would, you know. Uh, you know, Tull and, and uh, uh, Deep Purple and uh, Pink Floyd and those people. So, you know, Aerosmith actually is an American band, even though they're like kind of the arc of the book are actually, you know, most of the other bands I talk about are British, other than Billy Joel, who I have had a, a number of experiences with. Mm. Now, you've heard the expression, never meet your heroes, when it comes to guys in the music business. You tell a great story in this book about meeting Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, which your, which your son, was it? Uh, excuse me? You tell, a great, you, you tell a great story in the book about meeting Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that again, like I said, you know, I met Jethro Atoll. I met, you know, I met. My brother turned me on to Jethro Atoll, and that was like no going back. My brother, my brother, before he went to college, was, was a relatively heavy man, and uh, he used to hold himself up in his room and play Fat Man over and over again. So that was kind of my introduction to Dull, as he, as he uh, proceeded to lose about 100 pounds. Um, but, you know, I finally got the opportunity. I never worked with Jethro Tull, but I did have the opportunity as, uh, my wife was out of town. Cause again, we were sort of, I don't want to say partners in the business cause we did, we, but we worked for the same person and did it different aspects. And, um, I sort of, she was out of town for another show with Rush or somebody like that. And I sort of just showed my face, you know, to, to, uh, uh, cause they shared the show. So with another promoter. So um, I showed my face on their behalf and I took a number of, um, of her, uh, I took her brother, her two bro- younger brothers and a couple of nephews. And it was just very interesting. I mean, it's, it, you know, we went backstage and I introduced them all to Ian, you know, me and, you know, my little uh, ducks in a row. Oh. And, uh, and, uh, you know, he was uh, not the, uh, he was not the most gracious host, but that's okay. You know what? You say don't meet your heroes. I already knew that about him. All you need to do is listen to Ian's lyrics and you understand the character that he is, you know? So I, I, I was not offended at all. I was not offended at all. In fact, it was, it was quite humorous to me that he should make a comment of, you know, when, he go, when I told him, you know, I've seen you probably 20 times and he looks at my backstage pass and goes, oh, yeah, really? How many did you pay for? You know, it was, it, was, uh, 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 it, it was endearing and humorous to me. It really was. You know, I, I was not offended at all. Okay. That's, that actually leads me on to another question when you talk about you, you knew what he was like before he went in. So so what artists did you hear was difficult? And when they actually got to work with him, they were actually really nice. That's interesting. You know, I, I mean, maybe it's my personality. I don't know. I never really quite, you know, approach things like that. I mean, you know, Van Halen, on paper, you thought Van Halen was going to be really difficult. Yeah, you know, yeah, they were, but... But I respected it because they were they weren't difficult so much as they would demand um they had a manager, Noel Monk, who really knew his shit, and they had a production manager named Patrick Whitley, who really knew his shit and uh you know they came in and and it was like everything had to be 
the way it was supposed to be. Because you got to understand, too, like all of these things come through, you know, they, you, you sign a contract with what you're going to pay them and, you know, all the all those kind of financial nuts and bolts. But then the rider is the whole separate second half, if you will, of the contract, which is all the things you're going to provide. Mm-hmm. And proverbially, you know, people hear about crazy rider stories. But the bulk of it is really technical. And it's like, how much power do we need? You know, can the roof handle, you know, all this, all this stuff that, you know, 80 million pounds that we're going to hang or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, I would say everybody said they were difficult, but I would say they were professional, you know. But beyond that, it was very loosey-goosey. You know, some people, some people uh, 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 were difficult, but it was a bad day, you know. I don't think they were difficult in, in general. You know, you could tell before you went into a show from the contract and the ride whether somebody wanted to come off as difficult or come off as demand, you know. Um, but beyond that, you know, they're people. And, you know, you hit them on a good day, you hit them on a good day. You hit them on a bad day, you hit them on a bad day. You know, it, it, uh, uh, you never knew what you were going to get. Hmm. You never knew what you were going to get, but that was part of the job. Like you said before, you know, it's a different personality to be in the rock and roll, you know, particularly in the concert, because, you know, the, the unexpected is the norm. You don't know what you're going to get on any, you know, you try to follow what the contract tells you to follow and have all that stuff there, but somebody's off one day, they're off with, you know, or they may come in and say, I ah, don't worry about that. You couldn't take care of that. That's not a problem. You know, yeah. Um, when I read the chapters on Van Halen, two words came to mind that they're both opposites. Organized chaos. <laughs> you know, it was organized, but it wasn't chaos. If there was chaos, they wanted to make chaos. You know, um, particularly the part of the Van Halen chapter that takes part in uh, Detroit. Yeah. Three-day stint in Detroit. Yeah. You know, that was... I wouldn't say organized chaos. I would say it was orchestrated chaos. You know, they knew they had Life Magazine there for three days and they were going to be as outrageous as they possibly could be. You know, I mean, the first night I had to interview strippers for the backstage party. You know, the next day we had to get a a girl to pop out of a cake because it was the security guy's uh, birthday. Uh, you know, the the final night, they just totally trashed the dressing room. And, it, you know, there's a picture in the book of Alex samurai sorting, and he had a real samurai sword, uh, Coors Lights and sodas in the hallway. You know, uh, they knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. Mm. The other thing you mentioned in the book is uh, David Lee Roth, and all the time you knew him, he didn't seem to have an off switch. He was always on. Yeah, well, Dave, you know, Dave was a character. Dave was a character, and uh, you know, like uh, you know, there's just a there was a great moment, a great moment now, I guess, you know, where like uh, uh, we were at Nassau Coliseum, and uh, the band's getting into the limos to leave, and my wife, who's still at at who just whose birthday was yesterday, is still the picture of beauty that I met in, when she was 17, um, was walking across the uh, the uh, uh, parking garage, and Dave just scoops her up and twirls her around and says, now that should be on the rider. It was a a validation of my taste at the very least, you know? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yep. But he let her he let her go, and that was the end of that. Mm. <laughs> <But> <laughs> now, Greg, in the beginning of the book, it definitely comes across that you're a huge music fan. Okay, now I like to think so. Yeah, so you, you end up getting into this production manager end of the business, and it comes across in the book on numerous occasions that you didn't really get to see the bands a hell of a lot. That must have really pissed you off at times, being the fan. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say I didn't get to see them a lot. You know, I tried my best, and particularly, you know, I, as I say in the book, if it was a band I knew and I was a big fan of, I would make a point to at least get out in the house to see the songs, you know, some of the hits, yeah. you know, that I loved. Um, you know, but it depended on what was going on on the evening. You know, some evenings, you know, backstage, there would just be a lot of things, you know, getting crazier that had to be taken care of. And some shows, you know, ended up to be, you know, relatively mellow. You know, like I talk about, you know, the Van Halen show, in one of those shows in uh, Detroit, where, you know, there was really a break in the action, and I crawled myself on top of a, a forklift and just sat back and, you know, enjoyed it. You know, it, it's, I tried to take those moments, but, you know, at the end of the day, it did become work. Yeah. It was work. I was there to do a job and I couldn't, you know, disappear because I was a big fan. No matter, no matter how big a fan I was, I had to make sure I was getting my job done. Mm. You, you do detail what the role of the production manager you, and you go through the roles of all the people in the, in the concert business, be the promoters and the booking agents and all that. But what, what's the biggest misconception out there? About about a production manager for a concert that people well, have said. I, mean, I think the biggest misconception is that you know people walk in at seven o'clock when the doors open, and they just don't really understand everything it it that has gone on throughout the day. Yeah. To make that show happen, and that's why it was like important to me to actually write a chapter like that, so that you know when when people who read it the next time they went to a show at. Madison Square Garden or the LA Forum or wherever, you know, or the Boston Garden, which is what, the Fleet Fleet now building or something? Yes, T D T D Garden. T D Garden, yeah, it used to be Fleet, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that when they walk in, they think about it differently. You know, because it's magically you walk in and it's there, all there. But that started at six o'clock in the morning. You know, and that started that it took a lot of people's hard work and a lot of people's intelligence to put that all together, screw by screw, you know, and everything else to get to the point where this show goes on for, you know, three hours, eight to 11, typically. Mm. And uh, and uh, uh, and then they go home and then it's all got to be taken back, taken apart, thrown into a truck in the reverse order it came off and then taken to another city tomorrow to do all the same thing over. Yeah. You know, and I don't, I don't think so much it's a misconception as it's uh, people don't appreciate what it really takes and all of that, you know? Yeah. What's the longest you've gone when you were doing that without getting sleep? Yeah, you really read the book, didn't you? I did. That's great. It's 69 hours. That was my record. That was my record, you know? 
uh, it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. We would do that, you know, just it would end up, you know, a show, we'd have a show booked here, a show booked here, a show booked here, and you just have to, you know, I'd have to be there till one or two o'clock and make sure everything got out the door the way it's supposed to, and then head off to the next show. You know, thankfully, I didn't have to drive. I usually had my security guys drive me, you know, not because, not because I was a big shot and needed a limo driver. It was just I had to be there and be awake when I got there. They could go to sleep until the show began or you know close to it so yeah so tell me about your friendship with d snyder because of all ah, the, my of, friendship with d of all the you know my friendship uh, with d is uh it, it, it's loose you know it's uh um he, it's, it's genuine though like the, you have acquaintances with a lot of musicians in the book but the one with d has lasted well, the one with D has lasted just the, more than anything. The one with D started, first of all, just because we were very local to each other. And I, I, that's not how we met. We met because uh, Mark Puma, who I and my wife worked for, uh, ended up managing Twisted Sister, but they were a Long Island band. And that's mm-hmm. how we ended up managing them. You know, um, then, uh, 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 you know, just as time went on, you know, I was recruited to, to, you know, do their biggest shows. When they were still a club act, they would occasionally play first the Calderon, and then they moved up to Nassau Coliseum. But they weren't, they weren't touring at that level, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, these were kind of one-offs, you know, and, and their road crew was not uh, acclimated enough to those kind of rooms to, to, you know, uh, production manage the show. So I would be recruited to do that, you know. So we got to know each other there. But we really got to know each other much more after the band sort of broke up. He moved up here. I live in Huntington, New York on Long Island on the North Shore. And he moved very close. And uh, just for whatever reason, you know, I guess local, we would get together, you know. Uh, my wife Pam and his wife Suzette, you know, were pretty close. Um, and we just, I guess, you know, it, it, you know, there's not for their, from their perspective, there's probably not a lot of people they could hang out with that would be quote unquote normal with them, you know? Mm. Um, and we had known them. We didn't, you know, we didn't look at D Snyder as, and Twisted Sister as stars at the time, you know, we were all kind of partners in this endeavor, you know, to, to, to make something big happen, you know? So I, I guess, you know, you kind of take that element out of it and it just becomes, you know, Hey, you know, how are your kids doing? Hey, okay. They're good. Yeah. My kids are good. You know, we, we dozed. He came to my 50th birthday party. I went to his kid's weddings, you know, stuff like that. It, it's, um, you know, and, and, I've always given him a lot of credit because he he's always been able to reinvent himself and, and keep his flame alive, you know, even though, you know, Twisted Sisters flame yeah, flamed out relatively quickly and, and it's still flickering, you know, and still has its followers and all of that, you know, but, uh, but he's, he's, he's a good guy and he's, he's very creative and he's really, uh, He's really uh, gone down a lot of paths that I wouldn't have expected him to, but he's been successful at, you know, so I give him a lot of credit. Focus! Yeah. Um, <clears throat> oh, you mentioned Bernie Tormé and Clive Burr in the book. 
And of course, they yeah. played with D. Now, I'm not going to ask you about Bernie. I'm going to ask you about Clive Burr. And you just say he's a total nut job. I'm going to ask you, why do you think that? <laughs> you know, it's very hard. That's an impression. That's an impression. He was dating a young woman at the time. And we used to do, my wife and I used to go out to dinner with him and, and, and stuff. And I just remember, you know, it, it's, I don't remember in the book saying he was a total nut job, but I remember him being somewhat off the wall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that's the best I can give you because, you know, certain people just leave lasting impressions of me and for better or worse, you know, and not that it was bad, not that it was bad. I enjoyed his company very much, quite honestly, you know, Um, but, uh, um, but he just, you know, there's certain people you meet that are like, that are, you know, functioning on a different wavelength than us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Now, <clears throat> you did do a show with ACDC on the Back in Black tour. Oh, my God, yeah. Right. Now, the the one mistake on that was that they wanted to play in, was it 17,000? See, st- yeah, arena, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sold, yeah, I think you it's sold, like 15, 6 or 16, 16, and, 5, I think, National And, and you sold 5,000 tickets. You know, we lost our friggin' shirt. We lost our friggin' shirt on back in black. <laughs> Go figure. And then you tried to get the bell in. So tell 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 us about for getting the bell into the into yeah, the arena. Yeah, well, the bell, the bell. I mean, nobody knew the bell was coming. It wasn't like you know we knew what was going on. You know, it uh, uh, you know it, the thing weighed a gazillion pounds. I mean, came off the truck, and we tried to get it off the truck, and very carefully, and you know, so nobody got crushed. And uh, we got it to the front of the stage, and then the forklifts, because forklifts could lift just about anything, lifted it up to the stage, put it on the stage, pulled the forks out, and the friggin' road case, the wheels went right through the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? It's just like, it was so friggin' heavy, it just, the wheels just went right through the stage. You know, no cracking, no, like, freaking, no, no, no indication that something was happening. It just went boom. You know, and then we're all sitting there going, what the hell are we going to do now? You yeah. know? But the roadies knew. Roadies knew, you know, they, they got a winch coming down from, from the rafters, you know, where they had all the lighting and sound pump. And, uh, and they hooked it up. They took the lid off, hooked it up to the, to the uh, yeah, yeah, they said, yeah, but it's all, you know. And, and they lifted, you know, they cranked the thing up and it, you know, got off the floor. And then they got the, you know, then we had to yank the case, the base of the case, out of the floor, um, and then replace the stage because obviously you're not going to leave a piece of stage there with holes in it. You know, yeah. you know, you know, you don't want Bond sticking his uh, toes in there and going flat on his face or off stage. You know? mm. Um, Greg, what's on it? What's on the writer for the band for ACDC? Because I know Angus and Malcolm they just drink a lot of tea. Yeah, good point. I don't remember. I don't remember, you know, and that's that's an interesting thing. I so wish I kept writers from all these things. Yeah. I so wish, you know, but again, it was work. We didn't think of it like that. You didn't think that these things were going to be artifacts, you know. You just you just basically, you know, said, okay, threw it in the garbage and you went on to the next show. Mm. I assume somebody somewhere filed, but I've been in touch with... Uh, with uh, Mark, the uh, promoter I worked for at one point, he told me he had nothing. Uh, you do remember, nothing. you do remember, Greg, some of the weird shit that they wanted. Like Ted Nugent wanted a specific drink from from Michigan or something that you had to f- find somewhere. 
Yeah, well, I mean, he wanted he wanted Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, which cost like a fortune. But you could find it as long as whatever city you were in had a really, really good liquor store, you know, high-end liquor store. Mm. You could find it. But even then, I forget, I don't know, it was like $100 a bottle, $150 a bottle, and certain vintages, you know, that kind of thing. But the weird thing he wanted was a certain root beer, which I don't remember the name. Oh, that's but it, we, the root beer, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a root beer, and we couldn't get it. You know, and we found out a lot of people, you know, along the tour couldn't get it. And then I heard, you know, some years later that uh, he was so passionate about this rupee that he actually bought the company. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I can't, I can't validate that, but that was the rumor I heard. Okay. You don't have much in the book about Ted as a character. Like you have chapters on Aerosmith and, you know, Van Hale and and all that. Did did you did you get to sit down and t- talk to Ted much? I, uh, not never to sit down and talk. In fact, I never really got to sit down and talk with almost any of these people. You know, hmm. um, you know, they were just kind of passing, and I was I was more than a fly on the wall. You know, um, I consider myself a very observant pe- person, and uh, that's kind of why the book came about because I actually you know had these observations in my mind all these years later and uh, was able to write them down in great detail, quite honestly. Um, mm. And, um, and uh, uh, but Ted, no, you know, Ted was, I don't know, you know, Ted would show up in his loincloth on stage, you know, uh, the closest I got to him, you know, I mean, other, uh, you know, I've been on stage, but was uh, that shot from Intensities in Ten City. Yeah. You know, as far as I know, that was shot at our our show in Providence. And uh and one of the cuts on that album is from our show in Providence. And uh it's just at the end of the show, you know, we didn't know, nobody told us they were gonna do this photo shit. All of a sudden Ted starts doing like, you know, backflops into the audience. And we're like, Okay, we gotta get him back, we gotta get him back and this went on for like ten minutes, you know, because the photographer obviously wanted to get a lot of tape time so he could pick the right one. But, Mm. You know, it was, uh, you know, but it was just, I don't know, you know, I mean, just again, like, like Clyde Burr, you know, you could tell he was on a different planet. <laughs> <laughs> as, as everybody knows today. <laughs> yes, that's, that's why, that's why I wanted to ask you, Greg. Because I was, I thought you might have more about Ted in the book, but if you didn't, yeah, actually yeah, deal no, with him that no, much. no. No, any depth I had about anyone is in the book, you know, unless it comes back to me and I forgot it, you know, and it resurrects itself somehow. You know? Yeah. Now, the one guy you did have dealings with is Steven Tyler. Oh, yeah. And yeah. At, during the day and at three o'clock in the morning as well. Yeah. Um, now, of course, everyone knows that Steven was fucked up at the time. Yeah. Um. Would you would you would you know what Stephen you are getting the minute you looked at him, or would it all depend uh, on what time of the day it was? I mean, kind of, but you also kind of always figured you had a fucked up Stephen. You know what I mean? At yeah. that time, at that time, you know, it wasn't like you were looking to see what Stephen you had. You kind of knew what Stephen you were going to have, you know, and. And it's not that he was a jerk or anything like that. You know, Steven, Steven's an amazingly talented guy. And as I say in the book, you know, I was in high school and I saw them open for Black Sabbath and I knew the guy was a star. Hmm. You know, I knew the guy was a star. Uh, again, going back to, you know, what I pride myself on my, my, my ears and my, my uh, ability to see that kind of thing. But, um, but no, Steven, you know, Steven was just, 
in survival mode, I guess, you know, um, you know, uh, Joe had left the band, you know, the first part of the book is the band playing arenas, but small arenas, you know, to make sure they sold out because the last thing, you know, again, two years earlier, the band had been playing to half a million people. You didn't want to put them in 16, 17,000 seat halls and have it half full. That's not good for anybody. You know, yeah. it's not good for the audience, not good for the band, not good for the business, you know? Um, so, you know, their, their managers, uh, uh, Steve Lieber and David Krebs, I thought did the right thing and put them in, you know, mid-sized buildings, uh, you know, first in, in Binghamton, which I believe was about 8,000 seats, and then they had Fortnite, which was maybe 10 or 12, you know, but but not 20,000 seats like Madison Square Garden, you know, that type. Um, and, uh, you know, they were trying to reinvent themselves, you know. I mean, you know, interesting. I mean, you know, they came off of, the tour was in support of an album that personally I, I think is probably their weakest. I'm sure there's people that would disagree with me, you know, but Night in the Ruts was, you know, there was nothing there. You know, they, they, at the end of the day, the single was an old Shangri-La song, but, you know, so it obviously, you know, their songs didn't have what fans really wanted at the end of the day. I uh, don't know what the sales figures were, but I imagine I would imagine it's probably one of their their slowest selling albums, you know. Um, so you know, th- here they are going on the road, you know, without Joe Perry, um, without you know the, the the Keith Richards to you know Stevens Mick Jagger, and uh, you know they're filling each other out, you know. I mean, yes, they've they've rehearsed, I, I assume, together and stuff, but you know the, they certainly haven't had enough time to develop any kind of chemistry. Um, so, uh, you know, here they are, you know, starting with these arena shows and, uh, you know, it was, you know, I think it was tough for everybody. You know, it was tough for everybody evidenced by the second night of the tour, you know, Stephen passing out fourth song in the set. Um, Greg, I'm going to stop you there. Did did you think he was dead? Did I think he was a dead? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fatalist. So no, I didn't think he was dead. You know, I didn't think he was dead. You know, but, but, you know, and, and also, you know, we'd heard rumors, you know, and, and, you know, they were called the toxic twins, him and Joe for nothing, you know, so you, you kind of, you kind of figured that, you know, okay, he overdid it, you know, so I, no, I didn't think he was there. I didn't think. Now, the other guys in the band, Brad, Joey, and Tom, don't really get a mention that much in the book. Were, were they normal guys? At that time, or did they have their own issues as well? Well, you know, everybody had their thing. I, I you know, Brad was just, you know, Brad was like, you know, sleepy of, of the seven dwarves, you know, but an amazing guitar player. I actually liked his chops better than Joe's personally, but, mm. you know, um, I thought he was more tasteful, you know, and, and more, even more of a musician. You know, that might that comment come back to haunt me if this book ever does well, but, um, <laughs> you know joey you know joey was joey uh, you know i don't know how much experience you've had with drummers but going back to my high school years with my my friend eddie hoffman who was the uh drummer of the band that i quasi managed felt to be drummers were all crazy you know Correct me if I'm wrong. Clyde Burr's a drummer, right? Right, he is. I'll, I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll tell you now something. 
I, I've, yeah. I, I've noticed, I'm doing the show eight years, right? Yeah. The drummers often can be the best guys to talk to because they have no right. filter. They're right. not, they're not, they're not the, they're not the people that the PR guy sits down and says, right, you're going to talk about this, 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 and this, and you can't talk about any of that. And right. I think one of those reasons is the drummers normally don't get asked to do interviews. So when they do, no. they, they just tell you everything. Right, right. They haven't been coached, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know what could get them in trouble or not. Yeah. You know, so, but yeah, and, and they're just, I mean, you know, I don't know. Again, you know, think about it. Think about this. Think about that job, sitting behind the drum kit and banging your life away. You know, I want to bang all day, you know. Um, it's different, you know, you have to have a different mindset. You have to be coming from a different place to do that. You know? uh, yeah, it's very risky, obviously, but, um, it's, uh, just different, you know? So, yeah. So, you know, Joey Kramer, yeah. You know, I thought Joey was, you know, in that school, but different. he was pretty quiet, but different. Um, you know, Tom Hamilton was, was Tom Hamilton was just a sweet guy, a sweet guy. You know, um, never any problems, never, you know, uh, uh, no prima donna, none of that. You know, in fact, you know, I didn't, but uh, my wife was to his house. He lived in Newton, Mass, at, at uh, Payuga. Hmm. He lived in Newton, you know, at one point. Um, and uh, she visited and he was like washing the car or something. You know, it was like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and then... You know, what do you got? You got Jimmy Crespo. You know, Jimmy Crespo is like a kid. Oh, shit, I stepped into the biggest rock band in the world. You know, so, uh, you know, he was he was a nice guy and, and maintenance-free. Maintenance-free, you know. Yeah. Did the guys in the, ba- the band hang when they weren't on stage? Like You, you know, you, you get this impression in, in not only this book, but the other books as well, that Stephen was off in his own world. But you, you were on the road with them at for for you know for multiple nights like did joey brad and, and tom and jimmy hang together or did you they know, all go their separate ways during the day yeah good uh, good question though i can't give you an answer you know from you know from from my perspective and the way i was involved once the show was over everybody took off you know once in a while steven of all people would hang a little bit you know, with us while loadout was happening and stuff, just because, you know, he was just kind of in a different place at the time, you know. But uh, but everybody, you know, kind of, you know, whether they hung together once they left, I have no idea, you know. But nobody hung around really very long after the show in the venue, mm. you know. You yeah. know, where it was different, you know, Van Halen would do that for a little bit, you know. Um you know, different bands would do that. I mean, you know, Yes was interesting. I think I tell the story in the book after the show. Like, they wouldn't eat before the show, you know, so we had to feed them a real dinner. At yeah, that was a good story. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of different, kind of different. You know, so, you know, that was a different vibe. And, it's you know, it's, again, you're, it's, it's, you're dealing with human beings, and they're all different, and they all, you know, have their own their idiosyncrasies and good days, bad days, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's why it was kind of interesting for me, you know, just because I wasn't a road manager for a band. So it wasn't like I, I, I got to see a family of people every day and get used to their rhythms and all that kind of stuff. I had a new family coming in every day, you know, and, uh, and, and, 
I didn't know what I was going to get. I didn't know, you know, what their personalities were like, you know, until I'd worked with them, you know, somebody like Van Halen Aerosmith, who I worked with multiple times, you know, I would get to, I, I would, I would get some insight into who they were and what they were like, mm. you know, and then next time around, I would keep that in mind. Mm. Mind you, I'm like 21, 22 years old, which is freaking crazy when I look back on it, Yeah. You know? which is crazy uh, that I had so much responsibility and, and control to a certain extent, you know, for a guy, I couldn't even grow a beard. I still can't, but yeah, you know, who couldn't who wouldn't even try to grow a beard at that point. You know? Yeah. But you know, I, I, you know, uh, not to be unhumble or anything, but I was very good at what I did from a very early age, you know, so people trusted me, Greg, you know, Greg, trusted what? me to the point where, you know, this guy, Patrick from Van Halen at one point said, Hey, you want to work for us? You know, you know, I'm glad I didn't, but yeah, I, I like to think I was very good at what I did. Greg, when did you know you were good at it? Was there one show? You know, I was good at, I thought I was good at it. You know, when, when there were no problems, Hey, when it, you know, went off without a hitch. Yeah. And, you know, and then when people walked away at night and thanked me for my help, you know, and I knew it wasn't just slight, you know, they actually were sincere in their thank you because, you know, I got to believe that, you know, you do a tour of 50, 60, 100 days, you meet a lot of incompetent people, you know, I, I just know it in life and work, I meet a lot of incompetent people. Well, you, you, you said that yourself about the, the crew that Aerosmith had with them. Yeah, yeah, those guys, I wouldn't call them incompetent, but that whole scene was just so loosey-goosey, and it was just, you know, again, it was a very drug-fueled scene, particularly at that time. Mm. Um, you know, you know, I have no axe to grind with those guys, and I think they were good at what they did, you know, but they, everybody was of a like mind, you know. Um, that's why it was interesting when it, when Van Halen came along and the first time I worked with them and they came in and they just like, it was like, Whoa, these guys are a business, you know, yeah. it's like, there's no fucking around here. These guys are a business, mm. you know, and, and it was just so night and day and evident that, you know, where they were coming from, mm. you know? Um, and that's why, it, you know, that's why it, it just struck us all. We were like, Holy whoa, okay, you know, this is how it can be done, huh? You know, um, you know, because everybody, everybody in the business was young. I mean, God, I was working with Steven Tyler. I was, so let's see, that was 1980. So I was 22. He wasn't 30 yet. He might have been 28 or 29. I mean, you know, think about that, you know, today particularly. I mean, I have two kids in their 30s that I could never at this age view them doing. Yeah. What I was involved in, you know, and not to their discredit or anything, but it's just a different day and age. Mm. Um, you dealt with the Scorpions as well before they actually broke in the U.S. Yeah. And they were supporting a couple of bands. Yeah, I worked with them like twice in a week. You know, first they were supporting for uh, Rainbow, Richie Blackmore and Rainbow at the Calderon. And then several days later, they were supporting uh, Aerosmith on the show where Stephen passed out in uh, Portland, Maine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, these poor guys try to fire. Oh, my God. You know? yeah, talk about, you know, you know Richie. Uh, people say Richie is difficult. I didn't find Richie difficult, but he is definitely idiosyncratic, you know. Um, so I don't know what they went through on tour with. He's a good, Greg, Greg is a guitar hero. They all have to have a screw loose somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's why they're guitar heroes. 
Yeah, I guess. I guess, you know. But uh, but they're all, in, they're, they're, you know, they're incredibly talented. And, I mean, it's just, well, Richie's one of those people, too, that, you know, I grew up. He was, he was a good part hero when I was in high school. And, then, you know, to end up with him, too. Working yeah. with him multiple times was, was quite a trip. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, poor Scorpions, I mean, you know, yeah, they, they end up on this Aerosmith tour and, and the venue in, in Portland, Maine had, had, you know, definitely a dearth of dressing rooms, you know, they only had a couple, uh, cause they wouldn't let us use for whatever reason, you know, now I, I just realized usually you go into these places and they let you use locker rooms for, you know, the hockey team or the basketball team, but Portland, Maine, I don't know that they actually had a team at the time. If they did, they must have had some minor league hockey team or something. But they didn't let us use a room, so they only had these, like, you know, three, I think it was like three, you know, almost like bedroom-sized rooms. And Steven wanted his own room that night, so it left Scorpions without any dressing room at all. And I had to set up, I had to set up, like, stanchions with curtains in the, in the garage. You know, <laughs> these poor guys had to take off their pants and put on their leathers, you know, and stuff. And I'm like, it's not so bad, right? Right? Mm. <laughs> it isn't so bad. Better than the bathroom, right? <laughs> at, least, at, at least the Scorpions finished her set that night. Yes, they did. At least they finished their set. Yeah. That night. At least they finished their set that night. Yeah, yeah, Greg, I just got a couple of questions before I leave you go. Sure. Um, unions. You, you talk about the headaches of dealing with unions at venues. Yeah. That that always fascinates me because they're they're very strict on what they can and can't do. And you tell a couple of stories about having to pay guys overtime because they wouldn't move something like two fees or something like that. Well, that was yeah. I mean, you, you know, you had you had different levels. Most of the venues, you know, you had. Um, you had teamsters who unloaded trucks, and basically what they did was they brought everything to the end. Of, they took things off of stacks inside the truck and brought it to the end of the truck. Then when it got to the end of the truck, then it became a stagehand thing, where a stagehand had to handle the piece of equipment. Then you got to issues with staging. If you had a set up staging, sometimes it was a stagehand, sometimes it was carpenter. If you had electricians who were the only ones who could touch the electric. So it often got very, very political um, and not just political, but, you know, the story you were referencing was 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 uh, the evening with Yes, where at Nassau Coliseum, where the Teamsters, we had four Teamsters on for an eight hour day. And that's really all it took, you know, to unstack the thing in the truck and move it to the back of the truck. Uh, there was one piece that was sitting on a piece of load bars, what load bars are, like steel bars, that uh, keep things off the floor. For whatever reason, you may not want them bouncing around on the floor. So they, they, they hook in from one side of, the, uh, uh, of a tractor-trailer truck to the other, inside, from wall to wall. And there was one piece that was, you know, that was resting on, on, on a set of load bars like that. And four guys, four Teamsters, could not lift it. So they were like, okay, well, you know, four of us can. you got to hire more people to do this. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? You know? I mean, it's like, I'll get a guy. Me and a guy, we'll come in and help you. Six of us, we'll do it. No, we can't do that. So I had to hire another team of four Teamsters for another eight hours who never came to work to just so that I, I would be allowed and another person allowed to help the four teamsters who were actually on site 
lift this piece off the load bars to the deck of the truck. Literally, yeah, 18 inches, maybe. <laughs> you know, that was it. To lift it so the wheels would clear the load bar and then pull it out a couple feet and, and, and rest it, put it down on the deck of the truck. That was, you know. And, I mean, you know, you got used to it. It was, it was just part of doing business, unfortunately. Sometimes like that, it would really gall you, you know. Um, you know, but, you know, it's not like I'm saying there's no place for unions because God knows, you know, I've had my times with uh, college stagehands, even being one myself, that, uh, it, you know, it's just a nightmare because nobody knows what to do. Seasoned stagehands know what and, you know, they're, they're professionals and they're good at their job. But, you know, there are, there are times when, um, when uh, you can be taken advantage of by the system. Mm. Um, final question, Greg. When you left the business, uh, how long did it take you to miss it, or did you miss it straight away? You know, uh, I kind of eased out of the business, quite honestly. You know, uh, um, while I had my first day job, that, that three-day stint with uh, Van Halen and Kobo was... Uh, a, a week of vacation days from my first office job. Um, and I still did some club shows. I did, uh, you know, I think I did a Ramon show or two while I was had an office job and things like that. So I kind of eased out. And then, you know, my wife, who wasn't my wife at the time, but my girlfriend, we eventually got um, was still working for the same promoter that I worked for. So, you know, I would end up, going all the time to shows, mm. you know, and, and being backstage. So it was, while I didn't have to be there all day, I was still, you know, I still had my toe in the water and still, you know, involved in the business, you know, and, and, and I never really got out. I mean, you know, my wife, my wife stayed in the business until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, moving into the publishing business and working with, uh, a lot of divas like uh, 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 um, Celine Dion and J-Lo and uh, Mariah Carey and stuff like that. Publishing business is a great business. You know, you write a song, but the nickel every time it's played. It's like, it's well, it, it's the publishing business now is, it's uh, it's in the news a lot because a lot of the musicians are selling their publishing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, you know, from what I understand, Dylan got almost 300 million, you know, cash in now. I know Dee Schneider did it recently as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Dee got, I think Dee got a decent chunk of change. I mean, you know, hey, come on, you know, how many people, as much as Twisted Sister really had a short career, how many people can say they, they, they wrote songs as, as, uh, timeless, uh, as uh, we're not going to take it, and uh, I want to uh, rock. Yeah, you know, I mean, as I say in the book, to me, you know, those two songs are every bit as quintessential as Queen's "We Were Rocky," you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and played probably almost as much, you know. Yeah, um, but you know, bands on completely different levels, obviously, you know. But but you know, we're on the you know at a moment in time, and uh, and happen to have lyrics that just have a lot of legs to them, you know, for a lot of purposes. <laughs> so even when people, even when he doesn't want people using it, like certain politicians. Yeah, do. I know. That, yeah. But yeah. Hey, any publicity is good publicity, I suppose. Yeah, 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 yeah. At the end of the day. But, yeah. You know. So Greg, yeah. tell people where they can get in touch with you and uh, pick up a copy of the book. 
Yeah, okay. Well, the, the books the books are available everywhere where uh, good books are sold, you know, every Amazon outlet you can find, Barnes and Noble, uh um in in Britain, you know, you've got uh um well, I forget what the bookstores in Britain now suddenly, but uh any bookstores in Britain and Europe. It's worldwide at the moment, all online. Um uh, they'll walk in the bookstore. I hope people walk in a bookstore asking for it because then it will actually get in the bookstore. Um, though, you know, uh, the retail book business is, is in pretty tough shape these days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, go to Amazon. I have a, I have an author website where I post a lot of things, reviews and interviews and, you know, like this and, and things like that. And that's gdpretorius.com. Or you can, or you can go babysitting a band on the rocks.com and that redirects to the same place. Though that's a lot to type in, mm. you know, but it's probably easier than gdpretorius because nobody ever spells my name right. (laughs) Where's your surname? Is it Greek? Ah, funny you should ask. Um, No, it is not. It's P-R-A-E-T-O-R-I-U-S. No, no, where is Uh, it? The A-E is Latin, not not meaning Latin as in uh, Hispanic, but meaning Latin. Okay. Uh, derivation, and there is no uh, O at the end of my name. It's a high U.S., whereas in Greek versions, it's an O. And how do I know all that? My wife is 100%. Okay. okay. But I am zero. Okay. <laughs> so, Greg, it's been a ball talking to you. Good. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, I did. I, I enjoyed these things immensely. So, yeah. I appreciate it. You know, and, uh, you know, hopefully it helps me sell some books, which is great. Mm-hmm. You know, It's a great uh, book. I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that. You know, it's like I said, you know, earlier, it's, you know, you're writing it and you're like, does this suck? You know, is anybody going to care? You know, (laughs) and then I realized that, you know, there really was a world of people like me that was going to care, you know, and I said, okay, you know, if people are going to care, then I'm really going to do this correctly. I'm going to really work at it and make it as good as I can possibly make it. You know, it's not a tell-all. You know, that's not what it is. It's not a it's not a backstage tell all. It's just, you know, I don't know, one guy's one guy's experience is a guy who, you know, kinda hit the rock and roll lotto at an early age, you know, and didn't realize it at the time, but realizes it now, you know? Yeah. You know, again, you know, there were days back then where I'm going, oh, my God, why did I ever get myself into this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, uh, but, you know, now, at, you know, at this age, you look back and you go, wow, you know, I had experiences that people dream, you know, and that's how they make their way to a book. Yeah, yeah. So, listen, Greg, I'm going to leave you go. And you have a good night. And, again... Appreciate it, and can't wait to uh, can't wait to hear. Yeah, and I'll be in touch with you about hopefully getting your wife on to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Fans. Send me an email. I'll hook you up with it. Yeah, perfect. All right, Greg. Have a good rest of the night. Okay, great. Thanks. You too. Thanks, Bye. Richie. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. Bye. All right, told you it was going to be a long one this week, but that does make it a wrap for Richie's Talk with author G.D. Pretorius. Do yourself a favor and go out and pick yourself up a copy of his book, Babysitting a Band on the Rocks, because you just kind of got a taste of some of that stuff in Richie's Talk, and obviously there's a lot more stuff there as well. He does have a website, too, and if you go up to the website and see his photo, you would never put that guy you know, and how he looks with the book and his career and all that. But uh, good stuff. 
And uh, big thanks again for Greg for coming on the show and talking to us all about that. Hopefully, at some point, we'll be able to double back and uh, talk to him some more. And I know that he knows a lot of other people as well. So we're hoping this is going to spawn some other great interviews with other folks right here on Focus on Metal. And obviously, too, he did talk about, uh, you know, D. Schneider and all that. And if you haven't done it yet, go out and pick up uh, D's solo album. He just put out Leave a Scar just recently, and there's a lot of good stuff on that one. And, you know, a few weeks ago, I did tweet about having a Rat Pack morning, and then I ended up having a D. Schneider Leave a Scar afternoon. So another one, do yourself a favor, go and pick up a copy of D. Schneider's Leave a Scar. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.